Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the theories surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. So before we get into this week's case, I want to bring up some local news and some advice. If you live in Pittsburgh in a row house, you might want to move. A couple weeks ago, I did an episode about Roy Kirk who broke into his neighbor's row house via their shared basement. He murdered and dismembered her. The other night, I read a story on Facebook. The comments said it was a creepy pasta story or made up. Turns out, it wasn't. The next night on Inside Edition, I saw it again. A couple living in a row house with their baby in Pittsburgh reported hearing strange noises late at night. The husband put a camera in their attic and in caught on camera was their 60-year-old neighbor creeping in their attic, looking at them through holes that he had just drilled. Most of the holes were directly over the baby's crib. Just like Roy Kirk, he had gained access easily since the houses were connected by removing bricks. The couple found countless holes drilled everywhere. The man was arrested. But seriously, if I lived in a row house, I would be moving. In the meantime, maybe have some self-defense classes and some pepper spray. I doubt this guy will get any serious time, though, despite what occurred in the Roy Kirk case. But it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. I'll keep you updated. So let's get into this week's case. The world is made up of two classes, the hunters and the huntees. This is a quote from the short story, The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. The short story, published in 1924, tells the story of a man who falls off a yacht, swims to an isolated island, 
where he is hunted by a Russian aristocrat. The theme has been played out over and over in movies and TV. Humans hunted in the wild by an overzealous hunter who's become become bored with animals as prey. It became a reality in 1971 and 1983 when a man abducted, raped, and murdered 17 women in the Alaska wilderness. He would stalk them like animals with a hunting knife and rifle. I'm going to explore how he became the mad hunter and how one victim lived to tell the tale. This is the story of Robert Hansen, the butcher baker. Robert Christian Hansen was born on February 15, 1939, in Esterville, Iowa, to Danish immigrant parents. His relationship with his father is described as dysfunctional. Christian Hansen was a very strict man who made his son work long hours at the family-owned bakery. Robert Hansen had the cards stacked against him, painfully shy, with a stutter and a severe case of acne. He later describes his own face as one big pimple. Starting out as left-handed, his father forced him to use his right hand, and the stress made his stutter worse. And as you know, kids can be very cruel in school, and Robert was a target of their taunts and insults. He was shunned by girls, causing him to hate them, and inspired fantasies of revenge. He said, Going back on my life, I was, I guess what you might call very frustrated. I would see my friends and so forth, going out on dates and so forth, and had a tremendous desire to do the same thing. To take his mind off things, he started hunting. After graduating in 1957, he enlisted in the United States Army Reserve, becoming a skilled marksman. While working at the bakery, he served one weekend a month. After that, he worked as an assistant drill instructor at a police academy in Pocahontas, Iowa. He began a relationship with a much younger woman, eventually marrying her in 1960. On December 7, 1960, he would enact his first revenge against those who bullied him. He was arrested for burning down a school bus garage at his former school. He was busted when the 16-year-old bakery assistant he forced into helping him turned himself and Robert into the police. He served 20 months of a three-year prison sentence. During that time, he was evaluated, diagnosed with an infantile personality that was described as having childlike hysteria, a clingy fixation on others, and volatile emotions that made him feel like getting even with people. While incarcerated, his wife filed for divorce. After his release, he was jailed again several times for petty theft. In 1967, he decided to make a fresh start by moving to Anchorage, Alaska, this time with his second wife, a Pocahontas native, and his two children. By the time, he had become quite an accomplished game hunter. His home was filled with trophy animals of sheep, wolves, bear, and deer. He broke records, getting entered into Pope and Young's Book of World Hunting Records. He also got his flying license and bought a Piper Super Cub, 
which is a lightweight backcountry aircraft. Following in his father's footsteps, he opened a bakery in downtown Anchorage in 1981. He used $13,000 of an insurance settlement he was given for a fake robbery. He claimed several of his wildlife trophies were stolen. And when the fraud was discovered, he claimed he found the trophies in his backyard and just simply forgot to notify the insurance company. Robert began to frequent strip clubs. The rough Tenderloin district of the city was run by Seattle Mafia boss Frank Colacurio. Many were drawn to Alaska because of the building of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline and the Dalton Highway. Workmen were making big money and spending it in the city. Women who worked in the strip clubs or worked the streets were more than willing to take that money. Robert Hansen and many others frequented clubs such as the Wild Cherry, the Arctic Fox, the Booby Trap, and the still-operating Great Alaskan Bush Company. It was a very rough atmosphere, rife with violence. Police responded over 207 times to disturbances at the booby trap alone between 1979 and 1983. Thought to be an upstanding citizen, Robert Hansen would soon be exposed for the monster he truly was. Truck driver Robert Yount was alarmed by the appearance of the girl at the side of 6th Avenue. She was waving and motioning desperately for him to stop. He pulled over and barefoot and handcuffed 17-year-old sex worker Cindy Paulson jumped into his cab. He drove to the nearby Mush Inn where she jumped out and ran inside. She pleaded with the clerk to call her boyfriend at the Big Timber Motel. The truck driver left, promptly calling police. By the time the Anchorage Police Department arrived, Cindy had already taken a cab to the Big Timber Motel. They found her in room 110, still handcuffed and badly shaken. They took her to headquarters where she gave a harrowing tale. Cindy had been doing business on the street corner when a man in a pickup truck offered her $200 for oral sex. When she got into the truck to comply, he pulled out a gun and handcuffed her. From there, he drove her to his ranch house and drug her down to his basement which was full of his sporting trophies. His wife and children were away, having been treated by Robert to a European vacation. He called this his summer project. He had reportedly run ads in the paper seeking women to, quote, join me in finding what's around the bend over the next hill. He forced Cindy to strip and proceeded to rape and sodomize her for hours. He became exhausted, needing a nap. So he handcuffed her, naked, and chained by the neck to a pillar in the center of the room while he napped on a nearby couch. Afterwards, he made her dress, and he drove her to the Merrill Field Airport. He said they were going on his aircraft to a cabin in the wilderness for, quote, fun. His cabin was a meat shack in the Nick River Valley, and it was accessible only by boat or plane. Cindy was crouched in the back seat with her wrist cuffed in front of her. 
Robert was busy loading the cockpit. And while his back was turned, she crawled out of the back seat, opened the driver's side door, and took off to 6th Avenue. She didn't even take time to try to put on her blue sneakers, leaving them on the passenger side floor. Hansen took off after her, but lost her when she was picked up by the passing truck. At the hospital, she was given an exam, which revealed vaginal bruising and marks on her hands and wrists, evidence that she had been bound. She gave very detailed descriptions of his home, plane, vehicle, and his features. Two hours later, police confronted Robert Hansen. To their surprise, he willingly went to the station. There he was interviewed by Officer William Dennis of the Anchorage Police Department Sexual Assault Unit. He found him cooperative, letting police search his house, plane, and car. He signed waivers, but he had an alibi saying he was friends with his friends when the attack occurred. Friends John Summerall and John Henning backed up his story, saying he was with them. When Cindy refused to take a lie detector test, William Dennis thought she was lying and closed the case. It was his word against hers, a quiet businessman with a wife and kids, his word against a young girl who worked the streets. However, one person thought she was telling the truth. Officer Greg Baker had taken Cindy's complaint and was bothered by the girl's story of rape and imprisonment. Unwilling to let it go, he looked into Robert's past himself. He discovered in 1971, Robert was charged with the rape and kidnapping of an 18-year-old real estate secretary. He forced her into sex at gunpoint. When she screamed, he ran and her roommates called the police. While out on his own recognizance, he kidnapped at gunpoint 18-year-old sex worker Sandra Patterson. He told Sandra that if she didn't do what he wanted, that he would kill her. He bound her hands with leather shoelaces and drove on to Seward Highway. Many times he pulled over, trying to kiss her, telling her he wanted to slash her bra with a knife. He took her to a motel where he tried having sex with her but couldn't climax. This intensified his frustration, which he relieved by slapping her. He drove her back to town and threatened that if she told, he would kill her. He'd killed before and he would do it again. Despite that, she told police and picked him out of a book of suspects. Police interviewed him on December 29, 1971. He claimed to have vague memories of that day before abruptly calling off the interview, declaring he wanted his attorney and his doctor. It was likely that he was moving towards a psychiatric defense in the case of the assault on the real estate secretary. In March of 1972, the judge was convinced he wasn't that bad. Robert's church and friends had testified for him. The judge had concluded he committed the crimes in a state of disassociation, a state of his mental condition. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and given lithium. The Sandra Patterson case was dismissed in exchange for a no-contest plea in the case of the real estate secretary. 
he was sentenced to five years to the condition that he gets psychotherapy. The judge said, your condition is one that may be treatable. He was paroled in 1973. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Officer Greg Baker compiled this information and sent a report to Sergeant Glenn Floth of the Alaska State Troopers. Floth was heading the Topless Dancers Task Force. The bodies of girls had been found with similarities. In July of 1980, building workers discovered a shallow grave on Ikletna Lake Road. Inside was a badly de- decomposed body of a woman. Despite facial reconstruction by the police, she was never identified and named Eklutna Annie. On September 12, 1982, hunters found the body of topless dancer Sherry Morrow. Reported missing a year earlier, she was found shot in the back three times with a 223 Ruger Mini 14 rifle. And oddly, she was found clothed. She had been redressed after she had been shot. In September of the next year, a third grave was uncovered on the banks of the Nick River. This time it was the body of 17-year-old topless dancer Paula Goulding. Her death was the same as Sherry Morrow's. She had been shot and redressed by her killer. Sergeant Glenn Floth began his own investigation and reopened the Cindy Paulson case. He interviewed Cindy himself, finding her one of his best witnesses ever. She gave very detailed descriptions, having memorized the tail number on his plane, the location of his house, and every single thing that happened to her. She said of her escape, This motherfucker wasn't getting away with it. I knew I was in trouble. But if there was any chance of getting away, he wasn't getting away with it. Floth contacted FBI agent Roy Hazelwood for a profile of the killer. Hazelwood said he would likely be a hunter with low self-esteem. He would have a history of rejection and would keep souvenirs from his victims. He also mentioned that he might stutter. Noted FBI profiler John Douglas was also consulted for the case. He said after the case was over, He would have gotten off on his victims having to beg for their lives. Being a hunter at a certain point, it would have occurred to him that he could combine these various activities by flying them out into the wilderness alive, then hunting them down for sport and further sexual gratification. Floth also interviewed the friends who provided Robert's alibi. This time he threatened them with perjury. They admitted to lying, saying they were trying to help their friend out of an embarrassing situation. An arrest order was issued. 
At 8 a.m., Robert was arrested at his bakery. Glenn Floth and Sergeant Daryl Galen interviewed him for five hours. During the interview, officers searched his house. They found a rifle under the floorboards, which matched the ballistics on the gun that killed Sherry Morrow and Paula Goulding. Jewelry, firearms, and newspaper clippings about the murders were found in a hideaway of the attic. Most incriminating was an aviation map with X marks on it found behind his headboard. At first, he tried to justify these findings. Eventually, he admitted to the attacks and how they started as early as 1971. He said he raped at least 30 women and murdered as many as 21. Initially, any woman that caught his eye became a victim. But realizing that strippers and sex workers wouldn't be missed and would be harder to track made them prime targets. Sometimes he would only rape the women. He would let them go, promising to tell police if they reported him. Other women would be abducted and taken to remote spots, stripped naked, and then hunted with a knife and rifle. A plea bargain was entered, and Robert Hansen pled to four homicides and provided details about other victims. In return, he would serve a sentence in federal prison without being hounded by the press. Another condition of the plea was that he must decipher his map and locate the bodies marked by the X's. Police were taken to 17 grave sites in and around south-central Alaska. 12 of which were previously unknown to investigators. Sadly, there were marks he wouldn't give up. Three of those in Resurrection Bay near Seward. Many think they may be the graves of missing Mary Till and Megan Emmerich. Robert denied killing them. The remains of 12 women were exhumed and finally returned to their families for a proper burial. The victims were all found with Robert Hansen's help were Lisa Futrell, Maylai Larson, Sue Luna, Tammy Peterson, Angela Federn, Teresa Watson, Delyn Fay, and an unknown woman never identified, known only as Horseshoe Harriet. Bodies that were just found were Paula Goulding, Sherry Morrow, Ekletna Annie, Joanna Messina, and Celia Van Zatten. Not found but thought to be victims of his were Roxanne Eastland, Megan Emmerich, Mary Till, and Andrea Alteri. The four that he was formally charged with were Sherry Morrow, Joanna Messina, Eklutna Annie and Paula Goulding. And he was also charged with the rape and kidnapping of Cindy Paulson. He said of these women, if they came across with what I wanted, we'd come back to town. I'd tell them if they made trouble for me, I had connections and would have them put in jail for being prostitutes. One death that he was highly suspected of committing was that of Celia Beth Van Zanten. The 18-year-old went missing in December of 1971. She was headed to a convenience store, but she never made it. 
Sergeant Walter Gilmore was fresh out of the shower when he got the call that her body had been found. At the crime scene, he found the young blonde woman with her wrist tied behind her back with speaker wire. She'd been sexually assaulted, her chest slashed with a knife. It was surmised that she escaped her assailant and ran. Her first fall was 50 feet from the assailant's car. With her hands bound behind her, running through feet, three feet of deep snow on a slope, she didn't stand a chance. It appeared that she got within 10 feet of a waterfall but turned away at the last minute. Temperatures were very low, ranging from minus 5 degrees to 22 degrees at the highest. Beth had frozen to death. There were tire prints found in a nearby parking lot in a circular pattern. It appeared the killer had been looking for her after her escape. Sergeant Gilmore watched helplessly as the rain washed away all the evidence. A search near the body turned up a silver belt buckle and a black leather belt. Also near the body were yellow tufts of tissue paper. The initial suspect in the case was her cousin Greg, who had been living with the family and had bad, been on bad terms with them. The night she went missing, she was babysitting for one of Greg's friends. Greg's whereabouts were vague. He'd been out drinking with friends. Witnesses last recall seeing Beth around 11 p.m. Robert Hansen was asked about Beth, but denied involvement. There are many similarities between her case and the one of Sandra Patterson, the sex worker he raped and then let go. Both were taken to the same area. Their hands were bound and they were stripped, bras slashed, and both were sexually assaulted. Beth's house was within a mile of the real estate secretary's apartment. Robert had admitted to cruising that area, but nothing concrete connected him to her murder. Robert Hansen was sentenced to 461 years plus life in prison without parole by a jury. His wife divorced him and the family moved to escape the stigma of his crimes. He served quite a few years in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. In 1988, he was moved to Lemon Creek Correctional Center in Juneau, Alaska, then to Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward until 2014. After that, he was moved to the Anchorage Correctional Complex due to failing health. On August 21, 2014, he died at the age of 75 from undisclosed health reasons. Glenn Floth wasn't too heartbroken. He said, the world is better off without him. And I think many would second that sentiment. Many deaths and rapes could have been prevented had the police taken the first report seriously. When Cindy Paulson offered to testify against him in 1983, the Alaskan officer who took the information to the state troopers was dressed down for bringing it to them. Then when the troopers got on board and tried to draw up documents for searches of the property, the DA's office said they had no time to do it. An assistant district attorney from Fairbanks ended up doing it as a special favor to the troopers. Robert Hansen had this facade of being the perfect citizen. Father, husband, baker, regionally famous game hunter. 
In reality, he was still the angry outsider seeking revenge against women for rejecting him. Over 30 women were raped and tormented by him. He is known to have hunted down and killed 17. There are potentially countless more that have yet to be discovered. Imagine the terror of his victims, being taken to a remote spot, stripped of their clothing, and forced to run for their lives, only to be stalked down like animals with a two twenty three caliber Ruger mini rifle and hunting knife. It had to have been beyond horrific. Robert Hansen's story has been adapted quite a few times for television and film. In 2013, he was portrayed by John Cusack in the movie The Frozen Ground. Nicolas Cage played the detective inspired by Glenn Floth, and Vanessa Hudgens portrayed Cindy Paulson, the feisty, strong-willed sex worker whose story eventually brought him down. Robert Hansen will live forever in the minds of rapes he committed. He essentially raped, tortured, and murdered a young woman almost every six months from the early 70s to 1983 when he was caught and the butcher's baker's reign of terror ended. That was his story. This wasn't the easiest case to research. All of the info out there is pretty much the same. Never was I able to find the names of either of his wives. On some forms, when they talked about the sex workers, they completely demeaned them by calling them whores or worse. Yes, they had sex for money, but they were also someone's friend, sister, mother, or daughter. They were human beings. And until we've walked a mile in their shoes, we should forever treat them like human beings. We may not agree with how they made their livelihood, but they deserve some rational treatment. I think the world could do with a little less judgment and a little more understanding. But for now, I'll step off my soapbox. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm very blown away from the response from everyone. I admit it's not easy working 40 hours a week at my regular job, being a mom, and doing this on the side. But I seriously love every minute of doing this podcast. If you listen to any of all or all the podcasts, thank you. Let me know what you'd like to hear me cover in future episodes. I really need ideas. You can contact me at Twitter at the Blonde Red Rum handle or on the Red Rum Blonde Facebook page. I try to keep those pages updated with true crime stories hitting the news too. So see you next week and remember, stay out of the row houses.